This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is Afternoons on Dubai Eye 103.8. Helen Farmer with you for today's episode of Afternoons with me, Helen Farmer. We were talking health, we were talking property. Where should you buy? in the UAE when it comes to investment, making some serious bang for your buck. We were joined by the Managing Director of House & House, Simon Baker, with his predictions, also weighing up whether it's buying off plan or an existing property. Plus, it was property expert, legal eagle Scott Hutton from BLK joining us to take my questions and yours as we asked, can you rent out your made room for a bit of extra cash? What are some of the hidden fees? And if you're buying a tenant and property, just how long do you need to give notice? Plus, on all things health, it was consultant dermatologist Dr. Natalia Spearings telling exactly why your tween probably doesn't need those incredible active ingredients in the skincare products, plus busting myths on the menopause. It was Anne-Marie McQueen on hand to help and unusual users for Botox. Prepare to be very surprised indeed. This is Afternoons with Helen Farmer on Dubai Eye 103.8. With House and House, 10 years of unlocking opportunities in Dubai real estate. We love introducing you to the experts and it's the industry insiders at House and House this hour with Managing Director Simon Baker. We are talking about property investing. The questions you need to ask the experts and the questions you maybe need to ask yourself and also a bit about the concept of buying off plan as well. You've been in the UAE for coming up to 20 years. Uh, what kind of changes have you seen in this space in a nutshell, Simon? Um, well, yeah, in a nutshell, it's been uh, it's been exciting, isn't it? I think you've been here almost as long, Helen. And it's, um, the UAE's changed so much, hasn't it? We were just saying I got off a plane in the middle of the night in the middle of the summer in Abu Dhabi in 2005 um, and drove past, I think JBR was just starting to be built. JLT, which probably hadn't really been thought of yet. Hard um, Rock Cafe. <laughs> yeah, the Hard Rock Cafe. I think that probably was just about there, actually. There, I remember yeah, going there. So, yeah, so um, see, it's changed hugely, hasn't it? And obviously, a, a huge part of that being thanks to off-plan property that we're going to be talking about soon. But it's it, been coming, um, and it's been, you know, I guess Sheikh Mohammed always said, build it and they will come. And that's uh, part of the excitement of the place, which is... Um, they certainly have. Been, ...being built ever since. It's really interesting to think about how our perceptions change about certain areas, you know, being, like, far out. And then, you know, within a few years later, you're like oh, that's actually super desirable and there's a mall right next to it and the park's gorgeous. You know, I'm using Dubai Hills as an example because we were there yesterday in the park, which was mm. lovely. And I was like, I remember when someone was talking about this a few years ago and I was like, why would you need another mall? The Mall of the Emirates is just around the corner and Dubai Mall's right there and it is absolutely, you know, runaway mm. success. Um, so we've had a number of questions for you. We're going to try and get through uh, as many as we can. Mine and, of course, those of the listeners as well on 4001. How to spot the right investment? Is there a secret source? Is there a secret source? Well, there's a lot going on at the moment, isn't there? So it's quite confusing. So you'd be forgiven for, you know, seeing all these different options and just thinking, wow, what a minefield. And it's really, really confusing. And that's true. I think there's, you know, we'd almost like to say that a lot of the time it's what to avoid, knowing what to avoid as well as what to go for. Absolutely. Um, we always encourage our investors and our clients to go for some of the biggest developers in Dubai, some of the, you know, typically government-backed developers, you know, the likes of Imar and uh, Miras are doing very, very well in recent years. Um, so again, you know, making sure that, you know, potentially spending a bit more money to make sure that you're buying something that's really good quality is well, uh, it would be something that I would go f- yeah, push towards. I mean, really. there's a few things there. I mean, you've obviously got the quality piece and you've got the reputation piece, but there's also, I guess, the assurances that might go with that. But does that mean you might be missing a potentially <clears throat> good deal by overlooking some of the smaller developers? I mean, listen, there 
are always opportunities, of course, you know, where, where there's a risk and there's a reward, as they say. So we have to try and help customers uh, weigh that up. So sometimes there are, there might be a smaller private developer who we feel very strongly is, can, can represent a fantastic investment. So there's, uh, there's, a, there's a lot at play here. So it's not as simple as, you know, you mentioned earlier communities. And obviously, when I first came to Dubai, we first went to Arabian Ranches. And that was somewhere where I now live, actually, funnily enough. But um, when I first went there, it was a place, as you said, it was said, you know, everyone said, oh, it's miles away. It's on the edge of the desert. And suddenly, if you look at the map of Dubai today, um, and you, if you'd bought one of those villas for a million dirhams, you'd probably be uh, quite pleased with yourself now. Very, so, um, very. Um, I want to ask about the different reasons that people invest, you know, in terms of short-term, long-term, capital growth, etc. So how, do, how does that ultimately inform someone and some of the decisions they might make when it comes to making a purchase? I mean, I guess, of course, you need to know what you're doing it for. So, you know, initially you've got, you know, someone's buying a house to live in. And I think you've spoke to a lot of our colleagues about different communities and buying a house to live in. So we'll put that to one side for a moment. So, uh, you know, when it is pure investment, it's all about the numbers and it should be, we should know what we're getting in for. We should know what the budget is. We should know, um, is your outcome for, for purely for capital growth? Is it something that obviously in the UE, there's been a very, very strong track record of very, very strong rental returns. So that's been something that's really attractive. So typically we can get people in the region of around 7% net, um, which is fantastic. Wow. So there's not many places in the world where you can buy a property, let's say for a million dirhams, and after 10 years, you've made back 700,000 of that net without paying any tax. Um, so I guess that's the real attraction here really is those, those rental returns are so, so strong. Um, and the lack of uh, income tax or obviously capital gains tax is... Um, Makes it very attractive. Very compelling indeed. Right, to the text line we go with us from House & House today, Managing Director Simon Baker. Um, so here saying, if one's investing in one bedroom apartment for rental purposes, would an apartment worth £1.6 million in an area such as Dubai Hills make sense, considering the mortgage rates might go as high as 6%, including the bank margin? I mean, that unless you make a return of at least 10%, you wouldn't actually be making any money. Is it practical? Um. Well, I think firstly, I think you have to look at what you're doing it for. Now, if you were buying a property in the UK and you were buying with a mortgage or, you know, I'm sorry, I refer to the UK being from the UK, but from wherever you're from, if you're buying with a mortgage with a long term view, you're buying with the view that it's for, it's for capital growth. So you're buying it with a view that your tenant is going to pay off your mortgage. And eventually when, you know, let's say 25 years down the line, it sounds a long way away, doesn't mm-hmm. it? But eventually that property will be paid off. And ultimately you could argue that your tenant has bought that property for you. So actually provided the rent covers the mortgage, I would say it's still a sensible investment. Um, the, the, the 10% idea, unfortunately, is probably unrealistic in any, 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 any area really or any, at any price point. So I would probably not worry about that so much the short term, worry more about the long term. We were talking to your colleagues last week, Chris and Jessica, who are the stars of Dubai Hustle on BBC mm-hmm. TV right now. And Chris being an off-plan man, uh, we're talking about that. And we've had a couple of questions about that saying, um, you know, what about buying property off-plan for investment? And what, or what kind of payment options are there for off-plan? So let's talk about that. Pros and cons of off-plan compared to that residential market when it comes to making those decisions. Sure. What are some of the questions you should be asking yourself, Simon? Okay, so you need to be asking what you want it for. And of course, if you wanted a house to live in, then this is why, you know, 70% of the business we do is residential and they're ready properties because I firmly believe that real estate is a real asset that needs to be seen and touched. So I think that's great. Um, when it comes to off-plan, obviously, you know, if you select a developer that's offering a decent payment plan, for example, what, you can... What, what would you define as decent? Well, I mean, of course, that's changed a lot. I guess you've seen the market and over the last sort of three years, it's, you know, your likes of EMAR have gone from something like a 50-50 payment plan to the most recent, which are like 90-10. So you need to be 
fairly cash rich in that position to be able to pay the payments. Of course, you don't need it all up front, which is one advantage. You can pay, let's say, 10% down payment and then 10 maybe every three or four months. But you need to be in a position to, to make those payments and pretty liquid, exactly. And you could probably take a 50% mortgage, but obviously 50% of a, of a villa off plan is still quite a lot of cash. And that's, uh, you have to be in a fortunate position to be able to have that. Mm-hmm. And then when it comes to residential market, obviously a lot more mature here. You know what, know what you're getting, but are there still that risk versus reward? Can you still get, still get those big gains? Um, I guess if you're buying a residential, you're going to be buying, if you're buying the likes of you know, Arabian Ranches or you're buying in Dubai Hills or any of these established communities, then of course you are paying what the market rate is. There isn't an opportunity for what maybe, you know, for example, we were selling Dubai Hills Estate in 2013 and knowing how, how well Emar build communities, we would go to our investors and, and you know, and uh, it's, you know, fortunately for them, it's turned out to be true that in the last 10 years, they've potentially doubled or in some cases tripled their money on those investments. Oh. So they've done very, very well. Um, buying as an investor and potentially selling to an end user so the, they've bought it probably cash and they've sold it to someone who on completion they can they can then get you know 75 or 80 percent mortgage in some cases and buy it you know with a long-term view with a mortgage so so i guess that leads on to where is the next dubai hills um, come on <laughs> yeah. Simon Baker, get your it's crystal, a million dollar question and we've produced out. a lot of podcasts and different material um which will sit nicely on our website for people to listen to for hours and if I they want, would really like i to. want to talk about it now because um, i'm going to right now saying, so in terms of there are a few communities that we really believe in. Um, one, as Dubai shifts towards a new airport, to buy, you know, to buy, to buy, towards Dubai World Central, there's the Expo site, which I'm sure a lot of people have seen, is, is somewhere that's very exciting. Mm. Um, it's it's a, a very interesting development in this government development. It's Sheikh Mohammed's one of his pet projects at the moment to make sure that he turns that, that Expo site, which has had so much money spent on it, amazing infrastructure, and really turns it into a community that people live in. Mm-hmm. So that's something that's it's actually been done a bit backwards for Dubai. Most communities in Dubai, they build the houses and then all the apartments and then they fill in all the gaps afterwards in expo they've built the expo and they're going to add the properties to it so it's one of the only property investments right now that's actually a ready community if you like where they're adding the properties to which is probably a bit more how you'd expect it to be done in europe or, or whatever so that's a very interesting one for people to have a look at um, at the, at so that's time. Expo City and that kind of Dubai South area. Also some great deals in terms of rents there as well. I know people that are moving out there and getting, you know, two, two three bedroom apartments for, you know, sub 90 grand, which is pretty, pretty, mm. pretty compelling right now. That's just saying best area for investing in a studio or a one bedroom apartment to get a good rental return. OK, so a very popular location for rental returns we find is JVC, Jumeirah Village Circle. And that is somewhere where we can typically, based on current market price, so this isn't based on something from two years ago, but based on current market price, we can get people between about 7 and 8% if they look at doing short-term rentals. Interesting. Um, so w- w- what do you define as short-term rentals, and do you need someone to help manage that for um, you? Yeah, I mean, you don't need someone to. You could do it yourself. However, if it was me, yeah, I'd probably prefer I'd, to avoid... I'd, I'd you know, We have sometimes have a few issues. It might be easier to let someone else do it. So we've got a, a, a short-term rental company called House & House Holidays, um, and we rent, We you know, typically something like a JVC apartment, we'd probably rent it out more monthly, actually. So people always hear holidays, and they think of two nights Airbnb. Mm-hmm. But actually, there's a lot of people... Dubai's a very transient place. There's lots of people moving here. The population's growing very quickly. And the people that move here initially, they do need somewhere to live, right? Yeah, so and it's a they don't want to stay in a hotel. Yeah, come um, get a feel for the place, figure out yeah, where you actually live. And, ju- and as you know very well, the, the long term rentals are 12 months, which is a very long time to commit to something if you don't know where it is, right? So mm. I think that the monthly option is quite good. You can pay on your credit card, you can stay for a few months. Sometimes, actually, you know, from, from an owner's perspective, it's a very good investment because some of those tenants end up staying for six or 12 months in a row um, and increase your occupancy very, very high. So that works as well. A message here saying, would, would a short term need to be furnished? So you it would. 
do. Yep. yep. So when we help people with that, so a lot of a lot of our investors will buy a unit uh, upon handover. They will help them take the handover, help them do the snagging of the apartment. Again, that's another advantage of off plan. It's brand new. It's nice and you know, hopefully nice and clean and tidy. We give it over to to our brilliant holidays team, and they'll go and furnish it, help arrange all that, um, and no no extra cost to you. Obviously, you'd have to pay the actual expense of the furniture, um, and then we manage it on a percentage basis with no with no minimum fee. So it's just based on performance basically to make sure that we're doing a good job for you okay last question to you managing director simon baker if i was to give you 1.5 million dirhams right here right now where would you be going to spend it i would be looking at expo probably or um potentially i'd be looking at a couple of smaller units with uh, with a view to rental return so their capital growth not might not be quite so exciting for the future but those rental returns here as i said are so strong that if i could buy a couple of studios and pay for my school fees then i'd be very happy with that <laughs> <laughs> we all want I, mean, I think we'd all be happy with that, yeah, right? We so. Well, do you know yeah. what? We talk finance on the show an awful lot when it comes to just wanting to leave the UAE as a winner up, you yeah. know? And I feel like a lot of people need to be thinking about that long term. A lot of people staying here a lot longer, getting some boots on the ground. Thank you so much. Really appreciate your insights and obviously uh, knowledge on this area. Simon Baker, Managing Director at House and House. For anyone who wants to contact you, obviously avail of your insights pers- you know, in person or, of course, some of the resources you mentioned earlier with terms of the website and the podcast. What's the best way of getting in touch? Yeah, I mean, you can jump on our website, houseandhouse.com. Um, we've got an amazing insights section. Our, our amazing marketing team have done a really good job with, so, which has got everything from podcasts. It's got investment guides. There's loads of information, and hopefully that would help you but make an informed decision. And obviously, if you'd like to then get in touch, please, uh, please do. It'd be a pleasure. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Helen Farmer with you this afternoon with House and House. Scott Hutton is in the hot seat. He is the head of construction and real estate at BLK Partners on hand to take my questions, but most importantly, yours. Can I still say Happy New Year, Scott? Yeah, I've wondered that. I think we're still within the bounds. I think so. I mean, I do feel like this has been the longest month on record. It's only halfway (laughs) through and I'm like, good grief. But it's, I feel like 2024 has started really busy, really strong. What's been keeping you busy? Yeah, I think you're dead right. There's been no messing around this year. It's New Year, we're back. Boom, go. Um, Things are manic at the moment. Um, Iraq is booming. Uh, Lots of people talking about Razokema. Uh, I think, I suspect we'll talk a lot about the RDC today, the, the Rent Dispute Centre. You know, lots of queries, always lots of queries about the Rent Centre. And this is to do with a couple of factors. One, people being asked to leave their their rental properties, and is that being in a correct way? And also rental increases as well. Exactly. Um, eviction notices, getting your deposit back. Um, a lot of relatively small things, but important to... An awful lot of your listeners, I would have thought. Absolutely right, because I think, and with all due respect to lawyers and those in the legal community, you know, there's a lot of talk about, you know, I'll report it or, you, you know, you go to court. And I think for the vast majority of people, that sounds, one, terrifying and two, really expensive. So I think there's a lot of kind of demystifying that it can be really helpful, whether that is you know, actually where you go, some of the costs involved. So if there's anything that's stressing you out, do get in touch. And actually, let's start with that because Francis has been in touch saying, long-time renter here and I'm buying my first property in Dubai and ever with the intention of moving in myself. However, um, I've heard and read a lot about um, buying a property that's already tenanted, lots of conflicting information. If the current owner has already served 12 months notice to, to vacate, would I need to serve the tenant another 12, notice, uh, 12 months notice as the new owner? Seems a bit crazy to me. You're potentially giving up 24 months for someone to leave your property. I'm all about tenants' rights, but this seems a bit OTT. I agree. And I think uh, there's some good news on this. 
um, relatively recent change in the RDC, the RDC Rent Dispute Centre. Um, previously, it was considered that if a seller sells a 12-month notice, that notice was personal to the seller. So when the property transferred, you know, that notice was effectively gone, mm-hmm. which to me just didn't seem right. And I'm pleased to say that the RDC have now decided that the notice will fix to the property. So the notice goes with the property and therefore the buyer should be able to rely on that notice. But there's a caveat. The RDC, the 24 judges in their full time now, um, is a massive setup and not necessarily all the judges will be on exactly the same page. Or timeline. Yeah. Um, So we've seen judgments come out saying the notice will apply to the property, meaning the buyer can use that. But it's not guaranteed. Okay. In terms of the power you have then in that situation, can you be like, I know that this is the case and here is some information. Is there anywhere that people can ultimately look that up and present that? Uh, That's an issue here. Um, No, unless you happen or you're interested enough to go onto the RDC website, have a look at some judgments, you can pull it out there. But even these judgments are not absolutely binding. You know, they are, they're not binding on the next case mm-hmm. and each judge can decide things in their own discretion yeah okay hope that helps Francis all the very best with the purchase but it should be should I'm be. sorry to interrupt you you should be able to take comfort there the notice should be valid and it makes so much more sense to tie it to the property okay so as you said 24 months that's a, a heck of a long time um, a message here saying if buying a property now with a mortgage and then relocating and ultimately losing the visa what is the ruling on, A, can I continue as the registered owner of that property? And can I maintain the mortgage here as a non-resident? I mean, plenty of people own properties here and don't live here. So what, what does that mean in terms of, you know, could the terms of your mortgage change? You know, what, what do you need to communicate as, as a purchaser when you do leave the country? You're dead right, Helen. The first point is that lots of overseas owners, so by leaving Dubai, that there's no reason you have to give up the property. You can remain the registered owner. But the terms of your mortgage may well change. You may have the mortgage may be tied to a residency or at least linked to and you maybe you get a better rate mm-hmm. as a resident than you would as non-resident. So you need to speak to the bank about that one. I wonder what happens then if you aren't yet working, you know, when it comes to those mortgage terms and the salary isn't necessarily locked down as well. So lots of question marks, lots of lots of variables, but ultimately it is possible to buy a property for you to no longer have a visa for you to own that property from outside of the UAE. Scott Hutton is with us today. He is the head of construction and real estate at BLK Partners. Joining us live is the Head of Construction and Real Estate at BLK Partners. Scott Hutton is here and very busy you are between now and five o'clock. Scott, we've got questions galore coming in on 4001 through the social media um, and the WhatsApp too. Now, if you would like to get in touch and have a chat, it can be a lot easier to explain some of these concepts on the phone. It is 04871 A message here, no name, and you can be anonymous, we totally understand, saying, I'm a bit strapped for cash. Wanted to get the legal line on renting out the maid room. We are not the owners of the apartment. What say the law? What say you, Scott Hutton? Okay, so you're not allowed to sublet a property without permission of the landlord. So you, different areas have different rules, but generally speaking, if the landlord agrees to it, um, there's no, no reason you can't. But 
if you don't get a landlord's consent, there's potential for being evicted without notice. Um, without so notice? Yeah, so it's... Uh, Boom. You don't want to be getting that one wrong. Okay. So check with the landlord before doing anything. Crikey. Okay. I think that's a pretty definitive answer there, Anonymous. Um, a message here saying, um, I filed a case uh, this week with the land department um, as I was evicted. Landlord has, of course, re-rented the house. I was charged 3.5% of our rental value for the court fees and then an extra 12000 for legal fees. Rira Lawyer's been helping me file the case. I knew about the court fees, uh, but the 12 k legal were a bit of a surprise. Is this normal? Could I have done without the Rira Lawyer? A bit overwhelmed, so went ahead, but are now rethinking what happened. Yeah, look, the legal fees, you have, you, you look, use lawyers, you're going to have to pay for it. And the bad news is you don't get that back. Even if you win, you won't recover your legal fees. So it's a, it's a dead cost, effectively. The thing about the RDC, though, is you don't absolutely need lawyers. You can do it yourself. Um, how? How? It's, most of it is dealt with online. Right. And you have remote hearings, but it will be in Arabic. Okay. Um, so if you've got an Arabic speaker that can help you, that's great. You can submit your documents in English, but the hearing will be held in Arabic. There'll be a translator available if required, but we all know how translations can sometimes go a little bit wrong. Mm-hmm. So better to have someone you trust there with you in Arabic, but you can do it yourself. Most of these are pretty straightforward. They're not super complicated legal issues. And the RDC judges, in my experience, are pretty helpful. Okay. And if you're there on your own as a party litigant, i.e. without a lawyer, they'll show you that bit more um, care and help. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, with the greatest will in the world, a lot of these cases presumably are pretty common and not as complicated as we might feel they are. Like, do, and do you know how that, you know how you feel like it's, yeah. it's like everything to you and you're so worried about it. And then you have, you know, lawyers such as yourself and your judges who are like, this is actually very everyday and it's much more simple than you might realise. Yeah, that's very fair. You know, I, I look at these as really common issues. Yeah. But if it's you, oh, personally, it's, it's the first time and it's the biggest thing you've got going on. Yeah. So it's a big deal. Okay. Um, and I'm happy like, to, to take calls on that and chat to people about it just to put their minds at ease. Your because style. it shouldn't need lawyers, most of these. Doing yourself up a job here, Scott. I know I am, but <laughs> it's the right thing to do, Helen. <laughs> Thank you. Um, saying with that, and no name on this message saying, I've been handed my eviction notice almost 12 months ago for the purpose of the landlord now wishing to move into the property. I know, however... The property is trying to be leased. Someone's even been over to, to view it um, and asking me if there's any problems. I'm due to move to a new place in the coming weeks. So how long after finding out the property could be leased can I open a case with RDC? And is it true that I could be awarded the difference between the current rental price I'm paying and the new rental price that the property is leased for? In short, yes. Um, that is potentially correct. You can start the case Day one, as soon as the landlord relets the property, then technically you have been illegally evicted. And the RDC really hot on these points. Um, I actually spoke to a judge in there recently and they said their guidance is up to two years rent. Right, So it's considerably more than what your listener here is saying. But in my experience, what you're looking at is a difference mm-hmm. um, in the, your rent and current rent or potentially your rent and your new rent at the new place. Interesting, especially given how much, you know, given the opportunity, that rent could be, could be going up. Yeah. I've seen some really, really drastic. Absolutely. And I've heard some, I heard some stories um, where landlords of multiple properties doing exactly this, right, to increase their rents. And 
the discussion has been, well, if one tenant, if I've got five properties and one tenant sues me and wins, I'm still up mm. because of the other four. You know, so I understand the, the, the situation from a landlord's perspective, but the fact is these are rent controls and they're there for a reason. Good point. Scott Hunt with us today. Simple question from Will. I don't know if it's going to be a simple answer. Saying, rebuying off plan, how protected are you regarding timelines, the project changing, etc.? Oof. How protected are you? Um, depends what your contract says. It's all about the contract there. And I hear people saying, well, the contract, the SBA has been reviewed by the Sorry, land department. what's SBA? Sorry, sale and purchase agreement. Thank you. So purchase agreement. <laughs> has been reviewed by the land department, therefore it must be fair. No, the land department are not reviewing that contract to see whether it's fair or not. They're looking at the nuts and bolts of the contract. Is the property correct? What is the area? And what is the price per square foot? Mm -hmm. They don't care about the terms between you and the developer. So there are there's definitely risk with off-plan. And I come across this so often. Did you read the contract at the time of signing? No. My agent said it was okay. <sighs> no one takes legal advice, all right? Which, again, that's fine. But at least read your contract and understand where your risk points are. The big ones are time for completion. When is this property going to be ready? And there'll be a date in there. But there'll also be a clause that allows a developer to extend that. Mm-hmm. You need to know realistically how much they can extend it by. And the other one that I would be looking out for is the variation in property size. Because if the, the unit is bigger, landlord, sorry, developer cannot charge you anymore unless your contract says otherwise. And guess what? They'll put it in. Your contract will say otherwise. <laughs> yeah. How much power do you have then as a buyer to, to push back on some terms and contracts when buying off plan? That's all about market dynamics, isn't it? Um, now, at the moment, market may be softening a little, but the developer is not going to change their SPA, okay? They want that contract to be the same for every single purchaser. However, to my mind, there's no reason why they can't give you what's called a side letter, you know, a letter from the developer to you saying, look, we commit to this completion date. If it's not done by then, we'll give you your money back. Mm-hmm. Or confirmation, this is your unit size and it's not going to change. If it does, that's on us. Okay. Scott Hudson is with us today. He is the Head of Construction and Real Estate at BLK Partners. <music> Joining us in studio for just a few more minutes, we've got Scott Hutton. He is the Head of Construction and Real Estate at BLK Partners. Right. Shall we crack on? Let's do it. Are you sure? What we've we got, got? Well, the theme seems to be loopholes to be honest got a message anonymous one here saying is it true that a landlord can increase rent by more than 10% by having a legal inspection made to the adjacent apartments okay well first point there is that the maximum increase is 20% but that is only where you are 40% below market okay so 10% I don't know where that figure comes from but what Landlords can now do, and I suspect that's what they're talking about here, is a valuation certificate. So where your rent is compared to the average market rent in the area, instead of that, you can get this valuation certificate, which will act as the benchmark. So if you're paying, your rent is 100000 and the valuation certificate says rent should be 200000 then you're obviously well below market. In that case, the increase could be 20%. 
right? But that valuation certificate is not to say this is your new rent. That is the benchmark against which your rent is measured. Makes sense. Okay. Hope that helps. Message is saying, can a landlord get around the eviction and re-renting laws by selling to his wife and re-renting afterwards? Follow-up message saying, I am the tenant, by the way, not a sneaky landlord. (laughs) (laughs) It's an interesting one and one I've had a personal experience with, we've dealt with, where we took an action against the landlord on behalf of a tenant and after the action started, the landlord transferred the property to a first-degree relative and the RDC saw right through it. So... No, transferring the property to a first-degree relative should not be enough to get around this and avoid liability. Okay, hope that helps. 4001, if you've got any questions for Scott, that's the SMS. You've got the ARN app. By the way, you can listen there live. You can message us for free. And, of course, 04871 is the phone line and the WhatsApp too. Now, let's talk, let's talk buying here. A says on the text line, my friend is buying a house in Dubai. She's the main applicant for the mortgage, paying the deposit, etc. Her husband wants to be added... However, he's not working and she thinks they're going to be separated in the near future. What will the legal implications be in that scenario? Is there any contract she can ask him to sign? Okay, that's an interesting one. It's a bit of marriage counselling yeah, for you. Yeah, that's certainly not my area of expertise. But the minute you add someone else to your title deed, if it's 50-50 in the title deed, then he becomes a 50% owner of the property. So, yeah, you need to be aware of that. And I'm sure your listeners will have heard of a, a prenup agreement. This is not a prenup, but there can be a nup. You can get a, <laughs> you can you, have a you nuptial can agreement. Get a, a, po- a post-nup. Yep. I always feel like that must be an interesting thing to raise at dinner. Right, darling, <laughs> should you go and get yeah. a back? I've been wondering, maybe we should get a post-nup. Yep. Like, yeah, okay, interesting. Okay, right, to the text line we go, saying it's an RDC question. Last, last year, landlord forces the tenant to add an additional term in the tenancy, saying contract will not be renewed. Is this enforceable in lieu of an actual eviction proceedings, giving a reason as per RERA law and also 12 months notice. Can the tenant be forced out without an actual notarised eviction notice and only based on this additional note from last year, which the landlord claims is sufficient of a notice? No, they can't. Uh, My lease says this lease is for one year only and is non-renewable. I'm absolutely fine with that because I know by law my lease is automatically renewable. Mm -hmm. So the only way to evict a tenant at expiry of the lease is by service of the 12-month notice. The law, that is exact, well, that is what the law says. So tenant there is protected. All right, question here from Becky saying, as a landlord and wishing to sell my property not to move into, am I required to give my tenants an eviction notice or just notify them of the sale? That's a really good question um, and it's nice to have a landlord on. The landlord is not obliged to serve the 12-month notice. But it is probably sensible because that will affect any incoming buyer. So if the buyer wants to rent the property and keep the existing tenant, Great. no harm, no foul. Yeah. You know, they can ignore the 12-month notice. But if the landlord does want that tenant out, then they want that 12-month notice served. So I think you are broadening your spectrum of buyer, potential buyers by serving the notice. Okay, better thing, good thing to do. Keep your nose clean. Do things properly. You just never know exactly, as you say, in terms of who could be coming in, both as a as a buyer and what they might be looking for. All right, anonymous message. We really are running out of time now, guys. You have to be quick. Four zero zero one, saying we're looking at the affordability of getting a mortgage and wondering what we could borrow. I understand that most banks only take fifty percent of your salary into account. Presumably, that's to do with your 
base in your extra thing. I've got a base salary and a variable monthly commission, which can vary a bit month to month. How do the banks take commission into account? Do you take an average of the last year or maybe last three months? And if buying with a spouse, do they consider both of our salaries at 50% or do they give less significance to the salary from the spouse? We've got credit cards that are paid off in full every month. No other borrowing or loans. Good question. It is a good question. And what I'm not absolutely certain of the answer, because each bank will have their own different policies. Um, they will certainly, they should certainly look at both salaries as they're both relevant. And they'll ask you for bank statements to show monthly incomings and outgoings. And if your commission is regular enough that it appears in your bank statements at a relatively consistent level, they'll average that out and they should be taking that into account. Okay. Um, anonymous message here saying, I have an eviction verdict and want to know how many days I have before I am formally evicted. Lost my job, couldn't afford rent, submitted appeal within 15 days of initial RDC verdict, but the verdict from appeal says it wasn't within the timeline for appeal registration, even though they charged me 50% of what I owed. When do I need to move out? I know this is a very specific one. I've just sprung on you, Scott, so apologies. Um, Well, sorry to hear that, but I think I would imagine the eviction notice should have a date on it um, and the order should have a date on it. And I think the sensible option is to comply because ultimately if you don't leave ultimately I suspect they'll turn up at your door with the police at some point and you'll be forced out so try and keep it in your own hands yeah absolutely all right and truly wishing you all the very best there um last question it's again i'm not sure if it's a property question or if it's a consumer question um but someone's been in touch saying they had um some work done in their villa had a two to five year guarantee on various parts they were a nightmare to deal with uh, now there's some damage. Floorboards um, are, are coming up. They're claiming it's due to water damage and us not treating the floors properly. This is not true. I've got another company to come in. They gave me a damage report that says it was actually not installed properly. Um, now the original company is not responding. What are my options? Can I report them to consumer rights? Does that achieve anything? Yeah, you can certainly report them. And I'm listening to you describe that. I'm wondering if this is one of my clients looking for free advice. <laughs> really? For. Um, yeah, look, you can certainly report through the consumer protection avenues um, online, which may or may not help you any. But bottom line is if you have a guarantee in a product, you'd be entitled to enforce that. And that guarantee would generally include the quality of workmanship. Mm -hmm. So if the workmanship is defective, you should have a claim against them. But it may be that you're going to have to go to court to enforce that right. Um, Scott Hutton, we touched on this earlier, but if this, this listener sounds like they might have just tuned in, saying, um, I bought a house and the previous landlord has served notice to the tenants. I plan to move into the house at the end of that notice. Am I legally obliged to also serve notice as the new landlord? Again, no, you're not legally obliged to. You should be able to rely on the previous notice. That's the most recent guidance. That's not formal guidance, but there's recent suggestions or decisions coming out of the RDC are that the 12-month notice served by a seller will transfer with the property and the buyer could rely on it. So rather than that potential for 24 months of notice and indeed any loss of earnings that might come from that, or indeed in this case, wanting to be able to get into the property that you've just bought, um, then we could be looking at much less. Um, We've been hearing from tenants and landlords alike. Apologies to Peter Gabriel. I am ditching Sledgehammer, even though I love it as a song. Uh, Because we've got a question here from a landlord for you, Scott Hutton. Who's on the line and how can we help? Yeah, hi, uh, this is Hemant. I just wanted to ask if you have uh, a tenant who's been in the property for three, four years, 
um, and you want them to locate uh, also, I guess, in one way to take advantage of what's happening in the market, is there any way to actually uh, uh, get them to locate me or is, is always the uh, tenancy contract auto-renewable uh, permanently? Um, well, hi, Kevin. Uh, first of all, I'm going to echo Helen's uh Remarks about Sledgehammer, I would love to have listened to that, but <laughs> obviously you're far more important, Kevin. So um, long and short of it is that the rental increase caps when they were introduced effectively provide that every lease in Dubai is automatically renewable. So your tenant does have an automatic right to renew. And the only way to evict the tenant at expiry of the lease is by service of the 12-month notice. And that only applies in three circumstances where you're selling, you want to move into it yourself, or there are major renovations that can't be done while the tenant's in situ. Um, Is there anywhere that we can point this listener in terms of seeing this laid out to make sure that correct process has gone through? Well, to see it nicely laid out in a helpful manner, yeah, have um, you might, might have created something? Sure. <laughs> well, yeah. Hey, I, I, I can help there. You should do it. Um, but you, you have a look on the land department website. All the laws are on there, um, and you're looking at the laws on landlord and tenant, uh, twenty six of. 2007 and 33 of 2008, I think, are the law numbers. As if I'm but, going to correct you on that. <laughs> feel free to give Kevin my number and you can message me Brilliant. and I'll point him in that right. direction. Will do. Thank you so much for that question. Um, would you know what? Apologies, as I said to uh, Peter Gabriel, but we've got a very busy text line here, so we're going to help you out as much as we can. Um, how long does a case take when the landlord has evicted the um, the re-rented? It's a straightforward case. We've got grounds to win, but it's coming up to a year since we move out and the landlord keeps reappealing to fight his case. There should only be one level of appeal. So the original decision, the guidance from the RDC is they're supposed to determine each level. So the first instance and appeal within 30 days, but that has slipped because they're so busy. Mm-hmm. Um, but generally, I would expect to see a decision within maybe three months for each level. Um, and like I say, there should only be one level of appeal. Once the appeal is made and decided, that should be it. And I've said it about three times. This really is the last question, Scott <laughs> Hutton. Um, my tenant is moving out but left the house in a state. Can I charge him more than the security deposit? You can, in theory. You can charge him for all costs are a reasonable cost properly incurred but how are you going to recover those costs you're going to have to go and sue them for it if you're willing to go through that process then absolutely yes you can um, and remember the tenant's role is to return the premises in the same condition condition subject to fair wear and tear mm. so it's not perfect it's not exactly the same but it should be in reasonable condition a right state sounds like there might be uh, a bit more than the yeah. odd the odd nail in the wall to put a picture up. Scott Hudden, thank you so, so much for your time and insights today. I think you speak so, so clearly, like, and, and I really, really mean that, on some really complicated and ever-changing issues. Um, as I said, you are the Head of Construction and Real Estate at BLK Partners. Wishing you and yours a very healthy and happy 2024. Uh, busy is a blessing, as my dad always says, but I hope you get a bit of a rest as well. Thanks, Helen. <laughs> Same to you. Joining us in studio from Hot Flash Inc. and Marie McQueen, it launched back in June 2020, taking a fresh look at clinical studies, treatments, products, trends when it came to the menopause. And as I said, 
gentlemen, this is information for everybody. Um, there's a podcast, cross social media. They do their own research and talk to an awful lot of people, experts across this field. Anne-Marie McQueen, welcome. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm really well, thank you. Can I ask what your mission is with Hot Flashing? What is, what is your raison d'etre, your why with wanting to educate and communicate in this space in particular? Well, I guess like a lot of people who start things, I started it because I couldn't find it myself. I'm a content uh, obsessive. And when I re- realized I was in perimenopause, I looked for research and information. And there was just everything was so polarized already. Mm-hmm. And it was sort of like a lot of freelancer.com, really general, everything you need to know about menopause, but really nothing. Mm-hmm. And people selling things. And I just thought there's just so much here. This is vast. Like this is mind, body, soul. And so I just sort of created it myself, starting with a newsletter. <laughs> and here we are, you know, coming up to four years later. Um, and conversations have changed an awful lot, I think, in that, in that you know, time period. And you, you are a big part of that conversation regionally, internationally. We're seeing a lot coming out of the UK, a lot of people in the public domain stepping up and saying, you know, this is what I went through. This is what I'm struggling with. There's still huge gaps in knowledge, an awful lot of confusion. What is your current frustration with the conversations around menopause right now, Anne-Marie? Well, it's funny because one of the one is that it's the same thing, that it's still very polarized. And it's I compare it to the childbirth thing. Like if you did it a certain way, that's the way you want everyone else to do it. And there is a lot of that going on. So people kind of seeking validation for their own decisions, whether that is, you know choosing to get go on to HRT or, you know, what, whatever. But that, that's so it's so difficult, difficult because, you know, every pregnancy and every birth is different. And the more research I do into perimenopause and menopause, I mean, the list of symptoms and issues and, again, on the flip side, the treatment, it is, it's enormous. It's, 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 it's no surprise that people are wildly confused. Yeah. And there's so many commonalities, but it's different for every woman. And what we bring into our 40s and what we bring to perimenopause impacts how our perimenopause is. Mm -hmm. My dream is to sort of get women in their 30s thinking about all the things they can sort of tackle and clear up. And then maybe they won't hit a wall when they're in their 40s. But at least in the time that I've been talking about it, everyone knows about perimenopause. And not everyone didn't know when Mm -hmm. I I was there. But another thing that sort of really as I get deeper and deeper, I learn more and more, and there's more things I'm I'm able to talk about. I've I've had a hundred episodes plus of my podcast, talked to dozens and dozens of doctors, and there's a huge divide between the mainstream medicine approach and the integrative functional naturopathic approach. And the integrative functional naturopathic approach, it really does seem to be more effective. They they people do a lot better over there, and um, I I think. In the mainstream, and this has been the way ever since people started, ever since hormone therapy came out, it's been estrogen, estrogen, estrogen. I almost say it's like Marsha, Marsha, Marsha from the Brady Bunch. I don't know whether you had that. We've got a lot of different hormones. It's an orchestra. Can I ask then, of all the research you've done, you know, the hundreds or so episodes, the countless experts, the huge amount of information that you consume and digest and, and put into the into the public space, what is... What have your big takeaways been? What do you like? Why are more people talking about this? I wish more women knew what. Well, when I mentioned the obsession with estrogen, when I realized sort of early on, because I talked to some really great uh, functional doctors, and they talked about progesterone, because that's the first hormone that starts to recede. Well, our testosterone's been dropping since we were in our late 20s. But the recession of progesterone, I sort of compare it to like the, the tide going out and the garbage on the beach. Mm-hmm. And that's where you get all the, the sleep problems and the mood problems. And I don't understand why the mainstream, when I interview those doctors, sometimes they're just like, I'm waving a hand across my face. They just give you progesterone because they have to. 
And synthetic for progestin, progestin or progesterone, it doesn't make, seem to make any difference to them. And I still interview doctors who really don't think about this. And that's, that's a huge frustration for me. Do you feel like the medical field, the training is changing? Because, you know, a lot of the conversations I have is that, you know, women's health, especially in this age at that stage, is given maybe half an hour. You know, mm-hmm. like there isn't, you've, you've got to really make a choice as a doctor to tune into this and do your own work and research outside of the training. And it's a huge, huge learning curve for doctors, right? So they usually have to go out and do it on their own. Now, smart, there's been smart people that have seen this coming that are educating themselves. I just had someone who's coming up on my podcast. She's taken the leap into functional. She was in, uh, she focused on uh, endometriosis, but she saw this coming. So it's happening. But I mean, my own gynecologist doesn't know a thing about HRT. She's a ba- delivered babies. She uh, she just kept saying side effects, side effects, side. I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm sh- I'm doing everything, showing her the studies, and I I can't get it. So. And, and this is what this is what I find really um, frustrating and a bit scary is that you know so much onus is put on the woman to go into a doctor's surgery and say this is the research I have done, this is the treatment that I want for X Y Z reasons. And it's an awful lot of women that are kind of falling through the cracks and not getting the help they need. On the line now, um, Ambreen, thank you so, so much for joining us. How can we help? What's your question or concern regarding perimenopause or menopause for Anne-Marie? Hi, Helen. How are you? The topic is amazing. I love it. First of all, I just wanted to thank you. Pleasure. Uh, I have two parts. Uh, my question is two parts. One is I am 39 and I have been reading a lot about it, um, and it really scares me. The more I read about it, the more scared I get. Uh, so how do you prepare yourself for pre-menopause? And uh, my second question is, like, support of your spouse you know, means a lot mm-hmm. during this phase of your life as a woman, as a, as a mother, as a wife. So why men are not educated on this topic. I think it's really important because you live under one house and all the mood things, hot flashes, because, you know, I've seen my mom go through that. And uh, my father was not very much able to understand it. So I always use, you know, use to wonder why men are not educated on this topic. Two great questions, Ambreen. So let's start with that one. Ambreen's in late 30s and saying how to prepare yourself for peri and menopause, you know, things that you can be putting in place um, before you start to get maybe some of the classic signs and symptoms. What do you wish you'd you'd known, you know, a decade ago and and speaking to that age group now, Anne-Marie? Okay, so first of all, please don't be scared because nothing is made better by fear. And yes, we all are starting to know about perimenopause, but that means people are starting to torque up the fear because that's how you sell things, get get people scared. So that's not a good uh, mental or physical space to be in. And it's not, it's a portal and a journey. And I don't want to sound like a woo-woo, but it really is because I'm on the other side of it and only good things are coming. I would, I would really take a look at your lifestyle. You know, I'd really take a look at your diet, at your movement, at your sleep, and how you use things to avoid emotions. Because I think this is one of the things that killed me in perimenopause, overwork, overdrinking, over-exercising, people-pleasing, distracting myself with shopping, whatever it was, I didn't feel things in my life. And I came with trauma from trauma from my early journalism career and trauma from my childhood. And I, I know that word gets thrown around so much. But we have the data to show that this makes perimenopause more difficult. And Symptoms worse? Yeah. And if you come in, there's a really great woman in um, Britain, Paula Rastrick, who's talking about the sensitive woman and the recession of hormones. And it's actually a lot 
more powerful. So I think if you can deal with your stuff mm-hmm. and I know that's like a huge job, but if you can sort of start and be aware that this overexercise, even healthy habits like like exercising, if they're not healthy, mm-hmm. this is going to kill you and you're not going to be able to keep going. And I think that second part is really, really important about it being something that a family, a couple will go through together. Mm-hmm. Um, my husband has joked about, you know, when I'm going through perimenopause and my children are in puberty that's when he's going to start taking the jobs in Saudi <laughs> that's when he's oh, like that's nice. see you later and he's joking but I kind of understand that you know he's concerned because we see an awful lot of women who are like do you know what I am done with taking xyz from my boss from my partner from my kids and things are going to change around here but things can change in a really positive way as you alluded to earlier so what do you wish that men listening today New or are there any resources that we can point that point the gents to? Well, men are talking about this more. I mean, Stephen Bartlett has one of those po- most popular podcasts in the world, and he had um, a menopause doctor. It's become kind of trendy. Good, James Smith, uh, James Smith, the personal trainer, had. I was on the Matt Haycox podcast talking about this. So men are getting it. Um, those jokes, I think it's a fear too. Like men are always, you know, th- they get shoved off to the side a lot. It happens in childbirth too, right? Like, and so I think they're scared, and it really is a thing. Like women do initiate the divorces at this time in life. Um, so it's a time to get on board. And I think discussing it early, like she's 39, if you start talking to your husband about it, and I don't know how you communicate, but it's just, it's not that funny, you know? It's not funny to joke. <laughs> I'm with you. I am with you. Anne Marie McQueen with us today from Hot Flash Inc. Talking menopause, perimenopause this afternoon uh, with one of the best in the business. And when it comes to the research, the access to the experts. Anne-Marie McQueen is with us today from Hot Flash Inc. Message here, and I like this, from the gentleman callers out there. Um, Al's been in touch saying, why is it called perimenopause or, and pre-diabetic? We don't call life pre-death. Why is it not a case of you have it or you don't? Can you ever have perimenopause one day and then not the next? Good question in terms of seeking some clarity there on terms, Anne-Marie. Would you mind breaking it down? I love that question. I love people that ask questions. Okay, so menopause is, this is a little confusing all over the world, but menopause begins when you've had your, your a year after you had your last period, 12 months after you had your last period. And some people call it post-menopausal after that, but I think menopausal is a really good way to describe that rest of your life. The area all before that, when changes start to occur, that's perimenopause. And that can be you know, a decade. It was a decade for me. It can be, and some people say seven to 10 years. I'm hearing people say 15. That's probably too long. But when the earliest things start, and we do need a word to describe that. And we, we had a word for a long time, but no one knew it. And so it's very confusing. And still in the UK, they don't really use perimenopause that much, I'm finding. And so we need that word. Now they'll say pre, pre-menopausal. Well, that's just a woman. You know, like that's just – and it's not the same as – pre-diabetes is kind of a weird word because you're actually in a state – it should be (laughs) peri-diabetes. Pre-diabetes should be – you're just fine, I think. But anyway, let's not confuse it. It it is an important word. So perimenopause is that time, as you said, kind of seven to ten years where there may be some symptoms coming in. A woman might be completely regular in her period. Yes, yes. But menopausal is – there has been 12 months of no period. Yes. Then that year I learned is called the transmenopausal year. See, we don't know a lot about menopause. So all this stuff is like emerging, right? Which, like, which blows my mind, yeah. given that, you know, half the population, it's not like childbirth or pregnancy where, you know, some women 
go through that and some don't. Every single woman. Every single one. And did you know that there's over a million, 1.1 million studies in the PubMed database on pregnancy? And there are there is a tenth of that on menopause. Wow. And then there's like under 10,000 on perimenopause. Like this is crazy. So even when people are talking about the data and the science, I, we just there's so much we don't know. And then interestingly, then you start to get the headlines. And I think there have been a spate of quite scary headlines. And I saw one last week, which I wanted to send to you, which was a new observational study um, out of the UK Biobank. Now, we should say the UK Biobank is actually fascinating in terms of the amount of information they have in that. But it was talking about... Um, women conduct it, going to sorry to contract rheumatoid arthritis and it's so confusing when you think about this time in a woman's life because if you're throwing in you know HRT in the mix if you're throwing you know women's health is so changeable at this time anyway when we look at heart health when we look at breast cancer when we look at this point at rheumatoid arthritis and it was looking at women who went through the menopause when they were 45 were 46 percent more likely to develop the condition than women who went through a little bit later basically. I think coming back to Amory's point, there's still so much fear around this. And I feel like that's one of the most important things right now is having this mindset shift that, you know, we fetishize this idea of youth and fertility. And then when you get to, you know, this, you know, late 40s, normally stage, the life's over, which is absolute garbage, because we're living so much longer now. Mm -hmm. It used to be, you you know, you go through menopause, and then you die, like five, ten years later, like in the old days. And now, you know, you can have three decades being, as you said, kind of postmenopausal, and making sure that that is really healthy quality time should be a priority for everybody, you know, in the healthcare industry, but also us as just you know people living it, right? Mm-hmm. So when it comes to that mindset shift about thinking about this being a new chapter, and I just said this off air, there was a podcast that I really enjoyed recently, and you just bought her book, Dr. Sharon Blackie. She's written a book on um, haggitude, leaning into your like haggitude. Mm-hmm. But what she'd said in the podcast, which is called The Shift, if anyone wants to check it out, and I know you've um, spoken to a number of people that have appeared on that podcast too, um, was she was saying, you know, people think about this you know, hormonal confusion when you go through the menopause. And she said what she found out is actually the one she wasn't getting PMS and she wasn't getting periods, that actually the clarity was incredible because she wasn't kind of befuddled every month by it. I mean, are you happy to speak about your own experience in this, Anne-Marie, and yeah. the people you've spoken to as well? Yeah. And I heard this and I started that, you know, when I launched, I had the tagline, this is going somewhere good. And I have had people argue with me. And I, there's been times I haven't been sure because I had an epic perimenopause. I mean, it started around my early 40s. And I just went through menopause um, in the summer and had a crazy year. Like I felt like I was in a tornado. I didn't know what was up or what was down. And my own health blew up. And you're so, someone who's, I would say, far more informed than, than the yeah. vast majority of us. Yeah, I'm a really healthy person too. Like people make fun of me for how I eat and how I eat the supplements I take and how I'm doing this exercise or that exercise. But um, it's all your own personal, like I guess your DNA and then what your life was like. So mm-hmm. just a little bit about what your health can blow up at this time because you've had this hormonal sort of like concert going on and then it gets disrupted and then that can kind of expose other problems and there's also like a midlife like Jungian reckoning that goes on that I call the hero's journey and every man and woman goes through that where you're sort of looking back at what you've done and you can't fathom the future so that's going on my own health can think I had IBS for over 20 years you can't 
not properly digest your food for that long mm-hmm. without creating lots of other problems. And you had body pain as well at the height of perimenopause. Horrible body pain. So you started to look outside of that traditional, which I think is, is really, really interesting. I've got a quick question here from Helen saying, I had a hysterectomy but still have my ovaries. Will my perimenopausal symptoms be different? Now, you're not here as a doctor, but I wondered if you could point, um, Helen, or indeed anyone listening to any doctors, any resources. Obviously, you've got the website and the, the podcast, which, you know, is a fantastic source of just general information of this is an area that you want to educate yourself on but for this in particular is there anyone you recommend speaking to or any any research i'm blanking off the top of my head there are some great people talking about surgical menopause but what i want you to know is people think i have seen studies people think that if you keep your ovaries then then it's fine but i think that and not having your womb can definitely impact. So you want to be looking – I would be looking at yourself as if as if you went through surgical menopause. Mm-hmm. And there's actually a book called Surgical Menopause, so that can be very helpful. And um, I just think you need to be extra careful because the data shows that when you go through surgical menopause and it's earlier, you are at more risk for some more problems. It doesn't mean you're going to get them. It mm-hmm. just means that it's important to even look at hormone therapy um, – where maybe you wouldn't if you had gone through it and lost them a solar amount. I just want to come back quickly before we run out of time to something you mentioned earlier, which is about, you know, you choosing to be your healthiest self during this life age and stage, you know, whether that's sleep and eating and movement. You mentioned, mentioned supplements, which I think is a really hot topic right now. Is there anything that you think that women in this life stage should be researching and taking under doctor supervision, you know, when, um, when possible, um, that can have really proved to be useful to you, Anne-Marie? Okay, well, I've talked about peak Naginol before in the podcast. It's one of my favorite supplements. It's an antioxidant. It can really help with hot flashes and other brain issues. But lately, um, one of the people that I take a lot of advice from is a naturopathic doctor, Dr. Lara Bryden. She talks about choline because everyone's worried about their brain function and everyone's worried about preventing dementia. We scientists are very worried about the levels of choline that we have. Um, And so this is a great this is a great on her recommendation and a few other people I really respect uh, supplement to take. I take it. I have noticed a difference, but I have also noticed that my brain power is coming back after that restructuring. Mm-hmm. Don't let anyone tell you this is a permanent condition. Yes, it makes us more vulnerable to things happening, but it it does – our bodies are designed to go through it. Thank you so, so much. Um, really, really appreciate that. Um, there's a, so many – so many different issues that we can be touching on and we'd obviously love to have you back um, we've had a message here saying do you link your perimenopause to IBS before you go is that something you've, you've drawn any correlations between or is that a kind of separate issue I link uh, I worked with a holistic homeopathic doctor who's amazing we, she's also a gut specialist we link the fact that I wasn't really digesting my food and I was in a state of chronic uh, malnourishment for years and years and years. And I was exhausted a lot of the time, but mm-hmm. I just coffeeed it through. And um, so so that all backed up to create fatty liver, thyroid, low thyroid Hashimoto's, um, leaky gut. It all blew up in perimenopause. So yes, because perimenopause was the sort of tipping point for all and that. And it kind of exacerbated. But I healed it all and I feel much better and have barely any symptoms. So, Anne-Marie McQueen, for anyone that wants to find you online what's the best place of tracking you down hot flash ink everywhere that's flash not flash sorry british but british people <laughs> uh, it's everywhere podcast a. social media uh, my website thank yeah, you thank so you so home. much really appreciate it um just as a quick fyi we're also talking about the menopause on this weekend's um eye on health um so if you want to check out the podcast you can just check out on eye on health we've brought together some great experts in that space as well on the medical side too so that is up now on apple amazon spotify and indeed the dubai eye website as well.
reminisce with me, people. You might get a spot when you're a teenager, you have a bit of a frantic dash around the pharmacy, the supermarket. And that was it, <laughs> to be honest. Fast forward to today, you've got tweens and teens lapping up skincare advice on TikTok. You've got spending an awful lot of money in some stores as well, looking for complexion-induced bliss. But what do the skin experts say? Are children harming their skin by using creams that are pushed on social media and really intended for older people. We're bringing in the expert, Dr Natalia Spearings, who is known for her no-nonsense skincare advice, consultant dermatologist at King's College Hospital. Hi, Dr Natalia, how are you? Hello, good, how are you? I'm good. I knew you'd be the best person to ask about this because... <laughs> <laughs> you don't hold back. No. Um, so let's let's get straight to it. How do you feel seeing these videos where you've got these really peachy skinned kids mm. putting on endless amount of products in this well, A looking for attention potentially on social media yeah. and B chasing this idea of perfect skin. I think it's sad. I it, it does sadden me a lot because it does really affect these teenagers and I mean preteens kind of mental well-being. They become overly anxious. And I see that a lot in my clinic. They're just feeling like they're missing out on something or they should be doing something better or I have spots because I don't use product X. You know, so there's just a drive anxiety and kind of, I think, mental health, on like lack of well-being. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really sad. And it's difficult to um, get through to them. So the, teenagers seem to trust or children seem to trust influencers on Instagram more than they will a doctor nowadays. Which is, you know, I understand that because they're on a screen, sort of. <laughs> I, I mean, you're, you are the dermatologist that wants everyone to throw out their magnifying mirrors, which I am here yeah. for because, you know, you can get ready for a, a lovely meal when you're staying in a hotel. Look in that mirror and your night is ruined. So I can only imagine if you have one in your home, the amount of emotional damage it can do for you. So let's talk about what tween and teen skin actually needs. What kind of... And I even hesitate to use the word routine or regime yeah. in this, but yeah. I guess just keeping your face clean. What you know? What would you be buying if you had a tween or teen? Yeah, very little. So um, I would say, okay, if you want to use a cleanser, if you feel a bit like oily at the end of the day, or you need to wash off sunscreen or dirt from the football pitch or whatever, then just use a basic cleanser at night. Just something really simple and inexpensive. Um, you know, there's lots of brands out there that sell very similar products. And then I just say, okay, well, let's just do a little bit of moisturizer if you need it. Um, and then the minute they start getting kind of spots or something, I would then go right in with sending them to a dermatologist. Um, that would be my, my, my plan. We're not going to name some of the skincare brands that have kind of exploded yeah. in popularity as a result of mostly TikTok, to be honest. But some mm. of them have some super active ingredients that are looking at you know, fine lines, you know, <laughs> you know, they're, they're looking at issues that a teenager or a tween simply would not have. What damage can you do to the skin by using products that are super active and efficient? So these, these products can be very irritating to skin. So for adults as well. So I generally don't advise a lot of them for adults either, to be honest, but definitely for children. Um, if you, you know, it can just bring on problems. So it can, I, you know, it can bring on irritation, which looks like acne. If you already have a few pimples, it will almost certainly make them worse. So I try to steer them away from them because it, by, not by scaring teenagers, but by saying, you know, you're probably going to make it worse mm -hmm. if you start to use a lot of stuff. And then you'll start to chop and change because you'll be finding, trying to find a solution to 
new problem that you've caused by using the other product. That makes sense. And then it becomes this cycle. Yeah, it becomes this terrible cycle. So with most teenagers and, and young adults, I have to kind of get them to stop everything mm-hmm. and just take a couple of steps back. So it's, it's not necessarily, well, long-term damage from acne can be pretty terrible in the form of scarring. Um, but the short-term damage can be pretty bad too, just from irritation, redness, itching, and discomfort. Yeah, these products were not intended to be used in copious amounts, but definitely not by younger people who already perhaps have a little bit of acne. Mm-hmm. Dr. Natalia Spearings is with us today. She's a consultant dermatologist at King's College Hospital. She is online as well. Um, talking teen teenage skincare, that hashtag has garnered over 22 billion views on TikTok. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, inundating people really with mm-hmm. countless product recommendations. And I guess it kind of reveals a little bit about the, the tween and teen consumer market you know just the hold it can have on the beauty industry um and as you said influencers now you know being taken more seriously than actual doctors um we've had a couple of messages for you um if you don't mind uh, mrs a um saying is it recommended for a 10 year old girl to get facials for removal of blackheads is that something you could speak to natalia yeah, no, no. So I, I would not recommend a 10-year-old getting facials because almost certainly that will cause rupture of the follicle. So when the uh, black, if it is blackhead being squeezed out, that can lead to scarring, marking, pimples. I don't recommend facials for any age group, but definitely not for children. It can set them up in a in a in a cycle of using product, getting a facial, getting more spots, mm-hmm. um, especially when their skin is still changing. They're producing more oil now. Things are going to continue to change. I just think it can lead down bad habit down the road to bad habits, picking at the skin because that seems to be okay because when the facialist does it, it's fine. You know, this type of, there's a lot of issues with that. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. That, that's good. I, 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 this is, look at us. Saving people money. Great. Um, Jules says, hi, both. I use CeraVe products. I've slowly introduced my 11-year-old. I have very dry skin and very rarely suffer with spots and never had. Daughter takes after her dad, though, and is definitely beginning to get some spots. I've looked at the blemish control option for cleanser and moisturizer. Is it suitable for her or is it more aimed at acne? She's got a few spots around her nose and forehead, but still has very baby soft skin. Thank you. So what are you saying? <laughs> yeah, so so if the skin is very soft and there's just a few spots, then using a drying product that's an acne-specific product is probably going to just lead to more dry, to dryness, which will then be a new problem you have to deal with. Um, I, I would stay away from a, a products that are specifically aimed at certain problems. Um, I would just stick with the very basic general cleanser, moisturizer, and not acne-specific, because then you start using acids, benzoyl peroxides, and these things can be irritating in, the, in and of themselves. Mm-hmm. So I get my acne patients to stop using those. Really? <laughs> they can just irritate. Yeah, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it on the face of a 12-year-old who has no acne or very mild plus. Um, a message here from Venkat saying, any recommendations for a sunscreen that doesn't block the skin? Good question for this part of the world. We are talking about teen skin. I don't know how old you are, but I think that is a, is a good question because <laughs> when we look at the kind of the core products that a young person, or indeed anyone should be using. We're looking at a cleanser, obviously, get the, get mm. the, get the rubbish off, a moisturiser if, if there's some dryness, and ideally a giant hat, but not always practical. <laughs> um, so a good, a good sunblock. Um, I'm, I'm happy to give some brands some shout-outs if, if there's any, anyone you think is doing a good job in this space. Uh, Dr. Natalia, what do you, what'd you say? Yeah, so I, I would say whatever um, sunscreen the child likes to use. So this comes out to personal preference, just as it does with adults. So if it's too greasy, shiny, white you know, whatever, um, it will, the child won't, won't want to use it. So mm-hmm. I would get them something they like 
um, like choose your own sunscreen because they're all pretty much from a from a technical perspective they all do the same thing. So whether it's Nivea, Biodermal, whatever, it doesn't. They're all pretty similar. So I want the kids to want to use it. Yeah. So choose one that your child likes to use that they like the smell of or whatever. Um, and it doesn't matter if it's chemical or, or mineral based. Um, if they're going to be outside for extended periods of time and they're not going to reapply it, like if they're out playing sports or whatever, then a mineral-based sunscreen would be much better because it doesn't have to be reapplied with sun exposure. So a zinc oxide or titanium dioxide-based sunscreen is preferable to a chemical-based sunscreen. Dr. Natalia, thank you so much. Um, really appreciate the, the words of wisdom today. Um, and if you are looking for someone to follow his reliable... Um, and qualified, um, you can find her on Instagram at Dr. Natalia Spearings. You're in Dubai. I know you're fully booked, but there is a waiting list. When you come back to Dubai, because you work between here and London, um, the details of the clinic, you've, you've just, just, just done a post on how to get an appointment with you. And thank you so, so much, Dr. Natalia. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Helen. See you soon, I hope. Um, as I said, it's Dr. Natalia Spearings on Instagram. She is busting myths on everything from, you know, you know will rosemary oil actually help your hair grow to what is in her bathroom? cabinet um, and building up a skincare routine whether you are you know 12 or 70. Talking Botox now and yes we know it's exploded in popularity for all those aesthetic purposes but you might be missing a trick or two about what else it can do. Joining us from GMC Clinics we have got GP Aesthetic Medicine Dr Jenna Burton. How are you doctor? Yeah, I'm very good. Thank you very much. And yourself? Yeah, really well. I find this really interesting because I'm happy to talk about it on the radio. You know, a few years ago, I was like, oh, I'd never put Botox in my face. You know, it's one of those things we're going to look back in years to come and be like, you were injecting your face with poison. And then I go, I look exhausted and, ver- <laughs> and very happily got on the Botox train. Um, I was just saying to you off air about how it affects people differently. You know, how some people, it wears off really quickly, some people it lasts long. So we're kind of busting some myths today. So before we get into the do's and the don'ts and the where's and the how's, what exactly is Botox? Well, I think people don't really ever question what it is, actually. And the reality is people don't like to know what it is because, as you said, it puts you off a little bit. Because Botox is actually, it's a toxin, it's a protein, and it's made from a bacteria. So it's actually something that you can find if you get foods that haven't been canned or fermented properly. It will produce this toxin that can make you quite poorly. So um, we all refer to it as Botox, but really Botox is a brand. So Allergan were one of the first companies. Um, It's a cosmetic company, but they also do lots of other pharmaceutical agents. And they were the very first people that decided to use Botox for a cosmetic region and they were the first people that got the FDA approval to use it for a cosmetic region. It's a reason. It's a bold person that puts themselves in the fire alarm first for that trial. Well, exactly. Just put it in my face. Um, Well, it was being used in the face anyway to treat squints and that's how when people who've got strabismus, which is an eye that might turn inwards or outwards, what they were doing is they were injecting that area to relax the muscle to try and bring the eyes in line with one another. And what they noticed is when they were injecting it actually they, they had fewer wrinkles on that side so Allergan were one of the first people that jumped on the bandwagon and they sort of positioned this Botox but really what it is is a botulin toxin so if it's any other brand you're not actually allowed to refer to it as Botox. Well we've seen it evolve a lot I think the first yeah. few years were well quite frightening you know it was this kind of real frozen face. <laughs> it still exists I, I, <laughs> it's do, around. You do see it 
in certain establishments in the UAE and beyond. But I feel like the trend when it comes to aesthetics is certainly this kind of this softer, more natural look where you want your face to be a little bit dynamic and expressive and just not well, look as tired. I, I That's how I sit with my aesthetic procedures. And I always say to people, look, you want people to look, to say, gosh, you look quite fresh or you look really well. Has something changed? But they can't put their finger on what <laughs> it is. You don't to go, wow, you've got a lot of Botox in your face. What happens if someone comes in and says, I want to look frozen how they do, you, how they do, you do they do um some people do and that's it as you say that tended to be the trend at the beginning and now our look we're going for more natural and soft stuff softer looks mm. and that's why people tend to be focusing more on skin care as opposed to necessarily botox and botox i think botox and fillers should be the cherry on the cake mm-hmm. but when people come in and they ask to be frozen i do my spiel of look when you smile it's nice for your smile to touch your eyes and obviously it's nice to be able to move your eyebrows if we make your <laughs> if we make your forehead completely stiff your eyelids are going to droop a little bit because you can't lift up your eyebrows and everyone's going to know you've got botox um but some people will say freeze me and, and that's their choice that's my quote of the day it's nice to be able to move your eyebrows <laughs> I, to jennifer is with us today no I, we are going to talk about some i guess alternative uses for botox in just a few minutes but i want to talk about trends first because yeah. we we're just discussing skincare and you know teens and tweens earlier with dr natalia and social media has a big, big role to play when it comes to selling certain mm. treatments and products, um, but also how we use some things as well. And one thing that seemed to be, I mean, listen, who wouldn't want to look like Margot Robbie, quite frankly? <laughs> yeah, she's gorgeous. Unbelievable. Um, but that kind of idea of elongated, you know, Barbie Botox. Tell us a little bit about some of the trends that you've seen in social media and even coming into clinic recently. So Barbie Botox is definitely one. So for people that don't know what that is, that is Botox of quite a high volume into the trapezius muscle. And that is the muscle that sits kind of like the very inner area of the shoulder. So for most people, and especially crossfitters or those that go to the gym regularly, they'll have quite an enlarged trapezius muscle. Now, you can't elongate the neck. The neck is the length, but you can you can make it look longer if you reduce the use of that muscle. You reduce the use of the muscle, the muscle basically withers a little bit. This is madness. Yeah, and, and sort of doesn't die away, but it shrinks in size. And therefore, you get like a 90 degree angle between your neck and your shoulder. Now, some people, it's all about the aesthetics. For me, from a functional perspective, I'm really into fitness, so that wouldn't suit me because obviously if you shrink the muscle, you're going to make it weaker because mm-hmm. you're blocking. So the way Botox works or botulinum toxins is you have um, a nerve, a gap and a muscle. And obviously you want the, the nerve to tell the muscle to activate and to contract. But what Botox does is it actually blocks the neurotransmitter that tells the, the nerve um, so it allows the nerve to tell the muscle to contract. So therefore, the muscle's not contracting. It atrophies, which means it kind of withers a little bit. Oh, if you've got any questions, Dr. Jenna Burton is with us today. She is a GP looking at aesthetics, of course, in particular, as we're talking about today. Up next, alternative uses for Botox. From migraines to erectile dysfunction, could you be missing a trick when it comes to this? And of course, we're going to be talking about what happens when Botox goes wrong. This content is for informational purposes only and does not intend to substitute professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment.
Joining us now is GP and aesthetic medicine, Dr. Janet Burton from GMC. We've been talking about some aesthetic purposes for Botox and the origin story, I guess. But what about medical uses? You said earlier it started out as a way of correcting squints. And then the upside of that was quite a smooth face on the side that was used. Um, Migraines is something that an awful lot of people suffer from. And I've heard that being mentioned time and time again. Why would that help? Why would an injection help a migraine? Well, So first of all, the two most common uh, reasons that you would use Botox outside of cosmetics is migraine and hyperhidrosis, which is sweating. So when you see people with those frozen heads, the big shiny heads, it's because of a lack of sweating. So to start with migraines, the reason it works is often the origin of a migraine comes from tight muscles around the neck the sort of the, the superior region of the head and even like your frontalis, which is sort of the muscle that goes across your forehead, sometimes even from the frown too. So if you treat those areas and you relax the muscle, you relax the pressure on the nerves that are running through the sort of the head and you reduce the chance of getting a headache. Um, also, that takes the pressure away from blood vessels, etc., in the region too. And it's a really successful treatment. Wow. The only downside to, to it is just that it can cost quite a lot of money. You mm. use a lot of Botox because you treat basically the whole area of the head, the neck, and, and almost all of the regions that you would treat as if you were doing an aesthetic procedure as well. So you're paying by the unit then? Usually. It depends what clinic okay. you go to. So some clinics will say, right, this is the sort of the price for migraine. But it will be basically calculated on how much you, of Botox you're using. And it's expensive product. Mm-hmm. It's expensive for the clinics to buy in, especially if you're buying the right brand, um, which most clinics will tend to use as well. So it's very successful. It's expensive. It lasts about sort of three months normally, so you have to go back and do it again. And it doesn't tend to be covered on insurance, sadly, either. That would be nice, wouldn't it? It'd be lovely, um, yeah. Ashik's saying, what about um, bruxism? So yeah? jaw clenching. Yes. That's, that's bruxism, isn't it? So, yes. So it works um, twofold, really. So in one way, it stops you from clenching your teeth because you're basically te- um, treating the masseter muscle, which is how you sort of grind down on your teeth. And a lot of people do that over night time. And they do it subconsciously so they're not aware. As a side effect, they can tend to get an enlarged muscle, and that can be on one side or on both sides. Um, so there's an aesthetic uh, component to it as well. Mm-hmm. But also that can have problems with your TMJ joint, which is sort of like just at the the lower portion of your frontal face. And um, that can be exceptionally painful. That can cause nerve entrapment, etc. So it kind of works in both ways. It helps with the jaw, and also it helps aesthetically. And you don't need loads of Botox for that. It's not a, a big procedure. It takes two minutes normally between four to five injections. Let's go inside the body. Um, Bladder hyperactivity. Yeah. How? So that's normally performed by a urologist. So it wouldn't be someone like me that you go to visit for that. And actually they they go inside the urethra to do the injection. So it's not kind of quite as simple as just doing the odd sort of injection externally. (laughs) Yes. Um, now that wouldn't work for people like myself that's had three children and you know you sneeze and you're worried about what's going to happen afterwards this is someone that has hyperactivity not a pelvic floor issue so their bladder tends to contract a little bit too um, readily so again the bladder has got smooth muscle surrounding it and if you inject Botox you reduce the messages that go to the 
the the bladder muscle to say contract and therefore it relaxes as um, mm. a, a byproduct. Dr. Jenna Burton with us, staying in that area, so to speak. Yes. Uh, there's been some research done into erectile dysfunction and Botox being useful in that, presumably to do with blood flow. Is that all we're going to say on the topic? Well, no, no. Well, we can say uh, we can say blood flow is definitely the main aim of the game, shall we say? It's been proven to work for up to six months with the right amount of Botox, and it's only four injections, and it's quite a new use for it. But it's been really highly successful. And yeah, if you reduce the muscle uh, or the size of the muscle, the contraction of the muscle in that region, you get increased blood flow. And so. again, is that a urologist job? No, no, that's actually something that I do. Um, and quite a few doctors are sort of getting into. So that is something to consider because it's easy. You don't have to worry about tablets and it lasts. There you go. Um, let's talk about when Botox goes wrong. Now, yeah. we said earlier that kind of big frozen face, but I've also seen a number of social media posts of facial drooping, you know, where someone's had it, you know, in you know, eyebrow, forehead, and the whole side of the face is basically dropped, almost their eye completely covered. Is there any rhyme or reason about why things happen like that? Yeah, so one can be anatomy. So you could have somebody that just very randomly has um, a muscle where they shouldn't. Um, just like you can get people with dextrocardia where their heart's on the other side of the body. Likewise, you can get unusual anatomy. Uh, it could be the product that's used. So I tend to stick with Allergan or I will use a product called Disport. So um, they are really high quality products. We know the diffusion ratio. So if I inject in a certain area, I know how far it's going to spread. I know my safety areas with that. Sadly, some of the other products, we don't know as well the diffusion, where they're spreading to. Likewise, the older you get, the saggier your skin is. And so people will think, therefore, they need more Botox. You think, right, you've got more wrinkles, you need more Botox. But that's actually conversely what you're supposed to do. And what, what we really want to do is give less because it's going to spread further. So if I inject in what would normally be considered an area of safety, it can actually diffuse further. Mm -hmm. And then it ends up as a squint. If we inject too much to the sort of frontalis muscle, again, that muscle at the sort of the forehead, it's going to cause drooping of the eyelids. And this is why you go and see an experienced practitioner and not some dodgy Botox party. Just saying. Well, well, you know, yes. the amount of people that have said, would you not just do a Botox party? And I'm like, it's a clinical it's procedure. A, thank you. We should, you know, we need to make sure that we're safe. It's a foreign body that we're injecting into the body. Mm -hmm. Always a chance of infection, bleeding. So, no, let's let's keep it as such. Dr. Jenna, for anyone that wants to reach out with your permission, is it okay to share your details? Yes, of course, okay. please do. Brilliant. You can send me the word... What should we say? Let's just say doctor. I was going to say something rude. <laughs> Send me the word doctor to 4001, involved injections and jabbing. Ah, right, okay. You know where I'm I, going? I think, yeah. Nothing, nothing to do with you. 4001, the word doc, doctor. Dr. Jenna Burton is at GMC Clinics, we said there. Uh, really passionate about preventative health, how we can use our lifestyle to prevent disease. Of course, aesthetics we've been talking about today, but also some of the medical use of Botox. From migraines to bladders, squinting, erectile dysfunction, sweating. And if you fancy a bit of Barbie Botox, I'm sure she'd be happy to talk to you about that too. This content is for informational purposes only and does not intend to substitute professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. And thank you for downloading this episode of the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe. You'll get it direct to your phone as soon as it's out. And you can listen to me live on Dubai Eye 103.8, Monday to Friday between 2 and 5 p.m. 
You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.